0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Agency Nation Radio. I'm your host, Kevin Brandt, and I'm joined today by Robert Gordon, Senior Vice President of Policy, Research, and International for the American Property Casualty Insurance Association. Robert is responsible for developing public policy positions facing the property casualty insurance industry at the federal, state, and international levels. We're also joined by Chris Ziance business leader of government affairs for Progressive, where his primary responsibilities include legislative and regulatory strategy for federal and state issues impacting our industry. Chris has been with Progressive for more than 17 years. And last but not least, Chandra Munday. Chandra is product manager for Progressive. She manages Progressive's personal auto business in Maine and New Hampshire, and has been with Progressive for five years. Today, we're gonna talk about risk-based pricing and what that means for our industry and the consumer. So let's go ahead and get started. So Chandra, I'm gonna start off with you. For those listening in our audience who may not be aware, can you explain what is risk-based pricing?
1: Sure. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you for having us here, first of all. Um, risk-based pricing is a methodology used by insurers to set a policy prices. And what that means simply is that the goal is to price each policy according to expected costs, no matter who's insured by the policy. And um, insurance is a lot different than other things that consumers are buying something at the store. The seller knows that there's X material and Y labor and they set the cost based on that, but with insurance you're kind of pricing to future losses and so risk-based pricing is the methodology that insurers use to accurately or most accurately predict future loss costs and they use rating variables and model that to produce accurate rates based on predictive models.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So basically trying to forecast what future costs will be um, or inputs to the the cost for sure. It makes sense. Okay. So tell me why should agents really care about an issue like risk-based pricing? So what impact does it have on their business? What happens if insurers lose the ability to use risk-based pricing for their products?
1: Insurance is a, a very kind of big and broad market And agents are there to provide counsel to consumers as they navigate their way, purchasing coverages that match them and their needs, their household's. Uh, And risk-based pricing provides the best method achieving a broad and diverse market that has a lot of variety so that more consumers can find more choice in coverage options. And then, of course, agents, again, are the folks that know their customers, know the consumers, know what they need, know what they're looking for, understand their history to match the right rates to the risk. So basically, it's kind of that engagement, that relationship. And if variables and risk-based pricing models are limited, then carriers' kind of pricing options become more limited in that they lose their ability to model and predict future risks. And they may um, have to take other steps to ensure that they're not writing business that they have no way to predict. So, carriers in a world where variables are pulled out or risk based pricing is restricted, carriers may do things like, you know, kind of limit availability and kind of tighten the pool of who they write for.
2: Kevin, let me uh, give a quick example uh, that really. The firms and underscores what Chandra just said. APCIA recently published research showing the benefits of credit-based insurance scores as a rating factor for consumers. And in 1993, when insurers started using the credit-based insurance scores, we saw insurance availability dramatically increase. People were able to get coverage from the private market that weren't before instead of being forced into residual markets. And agents suddenly had many more competitive options to help their consumers and place the business. And what we've seen generally is the more objective rating factors insurers are allowed to use, the better insurers can match rates to the individual risk. And that really improves the availability and affordability overall, and again, dramatically increases competition and agent choices.
3: Kevin, I think a, a former CEO here at Progressive might have said it best. He said, there's no such thing as a bad risk, just a bad price. And what he was trying to get at is through risk-based pricing and rating freedoms and being able to price risks accurately, you're willing to write everybody that's seeking insurance, everyone from that consumer who unfortunately might enter and leave the market regularly and be a more dangerous risk up to that very most preferred risk. And along that whole spectrum, you feel comfortable writing risk if you can price them accurately.
0: Yeah, thanks. That makes sense. So essentially broadening access to better products that are accurately priced based on those variables. I think that makes perfect sense. So Chris, can you explain why non-driving variables are used to price auto and home insurance? So why are things like credit-based insurance scores, occupation, education, marital status, home ownership, age, gender, why are these things important?
3: Yeah, these are the challenges for us as an industry, because it's really an actuarial and statistic exercise in pricing risk based on predictive factors. The beautiful thing is these are objective factors that we can measure through actuarial standards. The challenge, though, is that if you talk about these at the dinner table or at the next party you go to, Not only might you lose a friend quickly just because you're boring, the very fact is people scratch their heads. When we're an auto insurer, we're looking to price auto insurance risks. They don't understand why a credit-based insurance score or somebody's occupation or education might be valuable to do that. But if you think of it on a more granular scale, there are reasons beyond the data and the predictiveness on the actuarial side think about somebody's occupation. It probably tells us a great deal about their driving habits. For instance, a teacher likely drives to school in the morning, parks their car, teaches all day, and drives their car home at the end of the day. Compare that to maybe a real estate agent. A real estate agent's probably out there on the road more driving clients to visit homes at different times of the day, often maybe the neighborhoods or areas they're unfamiliar with. So there's really some rationale behind it, but it's all grounded in this actuarial exercise where we're letting the data tell us what we should do.
1: And I also think that, you know, kind of the terminology, non-driving behavior or variable is kind of trips folks up, but these are driver characteristics and understanding driver's risk levels is key to being able to model projected or future losses. And through usage-based insurance, carriers, including us, have been able to see that characteristics of the drivers do match up with kind of levels of risk.
2: You know, Chris and Chandra are absolutely right. And as Chandra stated, almost all the factors, uh, Kevin, that you cited, really are driver characteristics directly related to driving risk. APCIA just published a paper with Professor Bob Hartwig that really for the first time explains the direct correlation between driver characteristics such as credit-based insurance scores and education occupation with the driver's likelihood of hard braking and hard acceleration. And it shows that there's a direct connection between the two. And the paper also explains that these driver attributes tend to be predictive of an individual's degree of risk-taking. So for example, age is a driver characteristic teen drivers are nearly three times as likely to be involved in a fatal automobile accident and almost a quarter of the time it involves alcohol. So they are very much driver characteristics. Now insurers also use local characteristics such as the traffic density where someone lives, whether the car is protected in a garage or parked on a street, and what the repair and litigation and hospital costs are in an area. And those driving environmental factors are all directly connected to loss proclivity even though they're not specifically driver characteristics
3: and Ke- kevin i think that the common theme there is that the public policy should be that those who cost more to insure should pay more for insurance and those that cost less to insure should pay less for insurance and that's what risk based pricing and using this large collection of variables allows And the benefit of using so many variables is that no one variable is going to have a disproportionate impact on somebody's rate.
0: Yeah. So essentially, the more data you have, the less impactful each individual data point is. Right. So and more accurate, the pricing can be in the long run. I think that that makes sense. So. Chris, I'm going to stick with you for the next question. And so recently in Washington State, the insurance commissioner took unilateral action to ban the use of credit-based insurance scores for the pricing of products. So, And I think since then, the courts have ruled that to be illegal. But can you tell me what happened to the market in Washington when the credit-based insurance scores were removed?
3: The entire process in Washington has really been interesting because it started in the legislature. The legislature put forth a bill that would ban the use of credit based insurance scores in personal lines insurance. And as the legislative process played out, there were hearings, uh, there was testimony, there was a lot of education from both sides on the issue. And after legislators learned more about credit based insurance scores, and understood their predictive nature and how they're used. The legislature chose not to advance that legislation. And it was, I believe within a week of doing that, that Commissioner Kreidler took unilateral action through an emergency rule to ban the use of credit-based insurance scores. And the way it was done was extremely disruptive because insurers had to react quickly to remove this variable. And it's a very powerful, and predictive variable for many. And unfortunately, what we've seen, and this was by the Washington OIC's own data, they showed a representative sample from a company where 61% of people and 20% of those saw a double digit rate increase. So they saw 61% see a rate increase, 39% see a rate decrease and that the magnitude of that increase was significant for many. And surprisingly, what we saw was that seniors, so those that are on fixed incomes that have built strong credit-based insurance scores through time of responsible behavior, that group was impacted most. And if you think about seniors, they're often on fixed incomes, and all of a sudden they're seeing a significant increase to both their auto and their home policy, With no additional income coming in, that's extremely disruptive. And Senator Mollett, who's uh, chair of the Senate Banking and Insurance Committee in Washington, recently held a hearing where some of those consumers came forth and told their stories. And it was really downing to hear the impact that this unilateral action had on people who had no change other than the fact that credit-based insurance scores were stripped from rating.
1: Yeah, and I think at that hearing, we also heard that the um, Office of Insurance Commissioner's suggestion for those whose rates were going up were to reshop, to shop more. And many agents had a disruptive experience as well. You know, the benefit of being with a carrier means that Consumers have discounts that they've obtained, and when they reshop, they often lose their discounts and is disruptive in that they no longer have the additional benefits that they gain from their existing carriers.
2: Yeah, when credit-based insurance scores were just abruptly removed from the Washington marketplace, it really is, as Chris said, it caused enormous chaos, and a majority of drivers suddenly had to pay higher rates. That means that low-risk drivers who are more likely to follow the rules Uh, as Chris said, sometimes on fixed income, suddenly had to pay more, frequently hundreds of dollars more in some cases, to subsidize high-risk drivers. A number of insurers have still not yet been able to adjust prices to accurately reflect the risk levels because of all the ongoing regulatory uncertainty. The Washington Insurance Commissioner indicated that he plans on imposing a three-year ban on credit-based insurance scores at the end of the year. That's despite the court ruling against him on the emergency ban, and despite all the harm caused to a majority of consumers in the state, and despite not even having yet held the requisite public hearings to consider the issue. But since it looks like the ability of consumers to choose their preferred insurance approach and enjoy potential discounts from insurance scores, probably going to end up back in court. That means that many insurers are still having developed potential options and backup plans with all the uncertainty and chaos that's been caused in the marketplace.
3: And Kevin, I think it's important to note that a lot of the disruption is not necessarily evident or seen by consumers because it's things that are going on behind the scenes. You know, we did hear from one regulator who said that, oh, there's not much disruption in Washington because no carriers have left the market. And I don't think that's the measure you want to use when looking at market disruption, because what we've seen is, because we're tracking it much more closely, is by removing credit-based insurance scores, some risks are going to be underpriced and some are going to be overpriced. And when you've got that market imbalance, carriers are going to do things so that we don't write too much of the underpriced risk. So there are changes to acceptability and underwriting and things that go on that really tighten the market and limit availability for those underpriced risks.
0: Yeah. So to summarize, it sounds as though absent these non-driving data points, the product availability is more scarce or with not as good coverage, but it's it's more expensive for everyone. I, I think is what I'm hearing you say is absent those variables or, or those data points, you have to price the product in a way that allows you to, to meet your later obligations in terms of cost of, of serving that product. So I think that, that yeah, that makes perfect sense. So for the next one, I'm going to go over to Robert for this. And, you know, Robert, I think if you listen to some of the consumer advocates that claim that risk-based pricing, especially non-driving variables, results in charging low-income and minorities more for insurance. Is that an accurate statement? What are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, Kevin, let's start with an undisputed fact. Insurers do not collect information on consumers' race or ethnicity, and in fact, state law prohibits such information from being used. And claims about discrimination have been disproved by every reputable study. For example, the Federal Trade Commission to study proving that credit-based insurance scores were not a proxy for race, and instead conferred potential consumer benefits of better affordability and availability. The NEIC, the state insurance regulators organization, published a nationwide study last year that shows there's no pattern of discriminatory loss ratios. In fact, the NEIC's data shows insurers do a very good job across different communities of charging rates that match the losses. And insurance is incredibly competitive. Consumers see constant insurance ads on television have lots of options. Our analysis comparing premiums to losses in many of the states suggests that a number of minority majority areas actually benefit of anything from a slight subsidy uh, in rates versus losses. Now that said, Loss costs are higher in some regions than others. So for example, auto insurers are now paying an estimated billion dollars for damages to vehicles from Hurricane Ida. A car being parked on a street in a hurricane-prone area is going to get charged more. A car that's driven in areas with very dense traffic is going to have higher insurance rates, just like the housing costs and gas prices and repair costs are gonna be higher in some urban areas. So the problem really has little to do with insurance. It has everything to do with the much broader historic socioeconomic and infrastructure challenges. And of course, that's one of the critical things we're working on looking forward is trying to address some of those historical infrastructure challenges.
0: Yeah, great. And so I've always said that a career in the insurance industry is a noble career. I think we work in a great industry. I think it's, you know, it's opportunity is abound for anyone from IT to finance to you name it, marketing. And the industry does a lot that I think goes unnoticed. And, you know, I think it's a good time for us to talk about what our industry is doing to promote social equity is an important topic in society today. What are we doing as an industry to improve social equity? What are we doing to improve affordability for people who are struggling to pay their insurance bills? Yeah, great question,
2: Kevin. And and, uh, I first of all, I totally agree with your comment about uh, insurance. It's really all about helping individuals and families and businesses recover from uh, catastrophic losses. And uh, we very much believe in the the mission that we're doing and the importance of uh, agents and helping reaching out and and helping people protect themselves. With respect to the promoting social equity and and diversity and inclusion, uh, we're trying to do that within the insurance industry at all levels. APCIA has been trying to help our members share strategies for making better progress, frankly, than the industry has in the past. We know we can make some improvements in this area. We've had a CEO-level board working group for the last year on social equity and inclusion that's been working, meeting regularly, and listening first to the uh, various minority diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants and community groups analyzing some of the best practices that are out there in our industry and other areas, and then planning potential campaigns and initiatives and reforms. Unfortunately, though, I'll I'll say that the uh, accident severity costs have been significantly increasing And particularly recently, with the spiraling litigation costs, the spiking inflation from the supply chain breakdowns, and the increased disaster costs from climate change. And so, we've been trying to identify and start to quantify those various costs and work with policymakers to try and uh, reduce the impact on consumers. And we've supported several infrastructure improvements and a number of resiliency and mitigation improvements, both in the recently passed infrastructure bill as well as uh, the upcoming Build Back Better and uh, a number of other appropriations that have a particular focus on helping vulnerable communities. Insurers are also supporting a number of auto safety programs that help contain costs as well as protecting people. And again, I think there's been a a particular increase over the last year on helping low income and minority communities in this area as well. So we're really trying to do our part and trying to do better than we have in the past. Although, frankly, until states can address some of the runaway litigation and our country can get inflation under control, some of these losses and costs are likely to get worse in the short term.
3: And Kevin, as Robert mentioned there, you know, there is that drain That we're not going to get past. We readily acknowledge that costs are rising, inflation is real, and there is a subset of the population that affordability is a real issue. And for those people, you know, we insurers want to be part of the solution. We've talked about low cost auto plans. There are those models in at least two states today, and we would be open to that to address a segment that needs an alternative to traditional insurance so that they can stay insured because that's good public policy. So, you know, we do want to be part of the solution to these issues. We want to sit at the table and we're all in favor of good public policy.
0: Sure. Uh, Chandra, did you have anything you wanted to add for, for the last question here?
1: Yeah. I mean, the only thing I would add is, you know, kind of we're in times where we're kind of still in the midst of a global pandemic. And one thing that the insurance industry did was provide a lot of premium relief to consumers. Um, many companies, including ours, did that. And I think just kind of, you know, we and other insurers kind of staying on top of, you know, what challenges are imminent. Our company also does a lot of employee giving, employee donations, and kind of matching. So there are a lot of levers that are being pulled. That said, you know, rising costs is a tough problem that I don't think any one company has is able to solve without kind of a collective coming to the table with regulators as well.
2: But of course, that provides a great opportunity for all the agents out there to help their customers shop around, to help them understand where the changes are and find the right level of coverage. So that's that's ultimately the, the best and most important thing that consumers can do is, is work with their agents, work with their companies, find the right level of protection and, and make sure they're getting the, the right package that suits their needs.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and that one of the big advantages of using an independent insurance agent is, you know, our agents have access to multiple products from multiple companies and, and can and that product to the consumer in a way that that makes the most sense for them. And it sounds as though based on our conversation, the more data points that the insurers have to use, the better the pricing, the better the product. And so that makes it easier for the agents to do their job and ultimately serve their client in the best way they can. So I think about that's about all the time we have left for today. I want to thank Chandra, Chris and Robert for joining me on this episode of Agency Nation Radio. Enjoy the rest of your day.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks.